Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here as well. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 10. I have the privilege of leading us through the passage that we're going to be examining together over these next few moments. Find your way to Mark chapter 10 as we continue our study through this gospel. Now, several months ago, uh, I started a five-week workout program called T25. Uh, those of you who know what, knows what that is, about a five-week uh, core-intensive workout regimen that takes place in the home. You can do a DVD. It's very short, very contained. I really liked it, but, but don't worry. Whatever I lost during that time, I've gained back, so don't sweat it. Uh, it's one of those things, but it is a core-intensive program. Uh, as the core is now a major target for uh, the physical development of athletes, for uh, personal fitness, everyone is focusing on the core. Now, the core, of course, is, is all the muscles in the midsection. And these muscles are important because they help stabilize the entire body. And the core contributes uh, to, to basically our strength and our coordinated movements. Athletes in just about every sport nowadays focuses on developing their core muscles because it's proven to make them so much better at whatever sport they're playing. And so in my mind, if the Seahawks are willing to do something like Pilates, I am too, right? So I'm even doing Pilates, or I was back then. Now, a person's core matters. And it matters not only for the health of our bodies, it matters, as we're thinking about tonight, it matters for the health of our leadership. In his book titled Great uh, Impact, Great Leadership Changes Everything, author Tim Irwin uh, points out the leaders do not typically fail in their capacity to lead because they lack competence. He says competence is necessary for good leadership, but it is not sufficient for good leadership. That leaders must have a strong core. They must have something within conviction and composure and character, something that is driving them as it relates to their morality and their values and their aspiration of virtue. So when a leader's core is intact and when it is congruent, leaders then are experienced by others as being authentic. They're experienced by others as being humble they're experienced by others as being trustworthy. You see, when the, but when the core is compromised, when the core becomes conflicted, others experience leaders as being arrogant. They experience leaders as being self-serving. They experience leaders being insecure. And when that happens, no matter how artful their style may be, no matter how competent their actions may be, Failed leaders, almost in every case, have a malfunctioning core. Something is broken within the core of who they are. And so I want to put before us this evening that the only leader worth following is a leader with an uncompromised core. The only leader worth following is one with an uncompromised core. And that really narrows our options, doesn't it? Because really one person who's ever lived in this world and lived without compromise, lived with a core that was without uh, being shaken, a core that was without disruption. And then when it comes to the Hallows Church and leadership amongst us, I want to put before us that the only leaders we should aspire to be, whether it's in this church, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in our social circles, our missional communities, whatever the case may be, the only leaders we should aspire to be are those who are constantly undergoing core development, 
those who are developing their core, those who are growing in their conviction, those who are growing in their character, these are the types of leaders and influencers and kingdom citizens we must inspire to be. So when we look at this passage, we're going to see that in his leadership, Jesus, yes, he displays an uncompromised core. But we're also going to see in this story the way in which he helps his disciples develop their core, the way he helps his disciples cultivate conviction and commitment and character. And so you find this immediately in verse 32. Verse 32, we are told that they, referring to a crowd of people, were on the road, and they were, but then there was a certain group that were, that were going up to Jerusalem. And then it says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. And that's the unique phrase of this passage. It's the first time Jesus is described as being out in front of his disciples. And the idea there is that he's put some distance between him and his disciples. He's leading the way. He's out in front and his disciples are following him. The crowd is watching him, but Jesus is out in front. He's leading and in light of that, as this passage unfolds, we're going to identify a few aspects of his leadership that, that was true of him in every moment and in every decision, and then also want to cultivate these aspects in our respected leadership as well. You see, what's amazing about this text, as Jesus is out ahead of his disciples, understand where they are going. They were on their way to Jerusalem. They were on their way to the place where most of the opposition against Jesus and his ministry was coming from. So when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he gets out in front and he begins moving to that city, he's going into the belly of the beast. He's taking everything that is standing against him head on. And so this is why the disciples, it says, why some were amazed that Jesus was moving. They weren't amazed because he was walking at such a fast pace. They weren't impressed by his pace. They weren't impressed by his uh, ability to power walk. They weren't amazed or fearful thinking, well, I don't know if I could keep up with this guy. He's walking too fast. I'm not in shape enough. My core is not developed to keep up with Jesus. They, they weren't amazed and they weren't afraid for those reasons. They were amazed and they were afraid because Jesus has set his face like flint. He was going to Jerusalem. And in that moment, we see something about his leadership. We see in that moment that Jesus resolves to do what's difficult. Jesus resolves to do what's difficult. This becomes very clear as you read through what Jesus says to his disciples. Because he explains to them in no uncertain terms why he's going to Jerusalem. Listen to what he says in verse 33. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite description of himself. It's a title taken from Daniel chapter 7, referring to the fact that Jesus is, is quite different. He's quite unique. The Son of Man speaks to the fact that on one hand, Jesus comes from God. He is God. And then on the other hand, it speaks of the fact that he's become like us. He is human. And so it speaks to his identity as the Messiah. But then notice what will happen to him. He's going to Jerusalem, the son of man. And it says that he will be delivered over to the, to the chief priests and the scribes. Those were the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is going to be handed over to them. And when that happens, they're going to condemn him to death. And then it says that Jesus will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Gentiles were non-Jewish people. Gentiles were the Romans. 
So here you have a conspiracy against Jesus that consists of both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. This was Mark's way of saying that what happens to Jesus, it's as though he's saying the whole world is in on it. Everyone has a role to play in the crucifixion of Jesus. Everyone is contributing to it, so to speak, Jews and Gentiles. And then listen to what it says. It says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The fact that Jesus is saying this means that he's aware of that going down. He's walking into that response. He's walking into that pain, into that suffering, into that opposition. But what you got to notice too is that Jesus doesn't end that moment on a downer. He, he never ends on a downer. This is why we don't just talk about the crucifixion of Christ. We also talk about the resurrection of Christ. Jesus has a way of turning, making, of, of turning an upswing. And so he does that here. He reminds his disciples of this promise. And after three days, he will rise. Yes, he's going to suffer. Yes, he's going to die, but he's going to come back to life. He's, he's resolving to do what's difficult. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And what's interesting about this language is that we see Jesus' resolve, his willingness to go to Jerusalem and to do this on one hand in submission to his father. He's doing it in submission to his father. It is the will of his father that he go to Jerusalem and do this, do this mission, accomplish this purpose. This is why there's so much necessity in the language. He says, the son of man will be delivered. He will, they will condemn him. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. This, this divine necessity of language being used here because everything that Jesus is going to do, this hard stuff, he's doing it in submission to his father. No one is dragging Jesus to Jerusalem. Nobody is forcing Jesus to Jerusalem. He's going there in submission to his father. And one of the interesting things about this passage and about this description is that it's really interesting to read the Gospel of Mark in light of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, written about 700 BC, it is a book written by the prophet Isaiah, and he says so much about what the Messiah is going to do when he enters the world. And Isaiah's fingerprints are all over the book of Mark. And so there's a moment in Isaiah chapter 57 where Isaiah prophesies the death of the Messiah. And when he does, he attributes the death of the Messiah to no one but to none other than God himself. Listen to it. Isaiah chapter 53. You find him submitting to the will of the Father as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. We read there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I don't know how that lands on you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, referring to Christ, referring to Jesus. It was God's will to crush him. And then it says, he, referring to God, the Lord, has put him to grief. He's sent Jesus to do something hard, to do something difficult. He's going to crush him. He's going to put him to grief. But then it goes on. When his soul, referring to Christ, makes an offering for sin, when his soul accomplishes atonement, makes an offering for sin, it says that he shall see his offspring. The Messiah shall see the fruit, his, his offspring, his spiritual offspring, his disciples and and as a result, he shall prolong his day, his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Do you see, even then, it goes to an upswing. 
First referring to the death of Jesus, then there being this prosperity coming, there's resurrection coming, there's life coming, all of this according to the will of the Father. And so when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, when he resolves to do what's difficult, understand that he's doing what his Father wants him to do. But he's not just doing this in submission to the will of the Father. He's doing this also for the sake of his his followers. So he's doing it in submission to his father and for the sake of his followers. You see this at the end of that passage. In Mark chapter 10, you drop down to verse 45. Verse 45 might be described as the holy ground in Mark's gospel. This is the heart of Mark's gospel. This is the theme verse of this entire gospel. Explaining on one hand who Jesus is and on the other hand what Jesus will accomplish. Listen to what he says, verse 45. He says, Mark writes, for even the son of man... That's his identity. Came not to be served, but to serve. But notice how. He came not to be served, but to serve. And this is how. To give his life as a ransom for many. So he's come. He's going to Jerusalem in submission to his father's will. But he's also going there for the sake of his followers. He's going to accomplish something significant for many people. He's going to give his life as a ransom And that is a huge word when it comes to understanding what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. The word ransom is tied to, it's kind of language that would come out of a hostage situation where someone's in bondage or someone's enslaved and, and there's a price that needs to be paid for that person to go free, for that person to live. You might think Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt, they were in bondage there. You might think to use New Testament language when Paul describes the human condition as one of being enslaved to sin, in bondage to sin, also enslaved and in bondage to the enemy under the rule and the reign of Satan. And then you go one step further and and you might talk about this bondage being one unto death so that the sting of death is a big deal. And so when Jesus says, when I go to the cross, I'm gonna accomplish a ransom, he's saying, I'm coming to deal with your bondage in the most significant way possible. Because he sees the human condition as one in bondage, as one in slavery to sin, to Satan, and death. But when Jesus gives his life as a ransom, when he goes to the cross, he's going to make the payment necessary for people to go free. Now, don't hear that as as if Jesus is going to make a payment to Satan. That's not what's going on here. The payment that he's going to make in this ransom, in his death, is a payment, in a sense, being made unto God himself. It is a, a ransom given so that on one hand, God's character can be upheld as just. But on the other hand, those who would trust in Jesus, followers of Jesus, may experience the grace of God. So when Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many, on one hand, he's upholding the character of God so that God may be shown to be righteous and just. And on the other hand, so that God might extend grace and mercy to those who are trusting in him. And when that happens, suddenly we are set free from our bondage to sin, our bondage to Satan, and our bondage to death. All of a sudden, we are able to sing songs that say, you know, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And the answer to that question is that if we are in Christ, death has no sting. If we are in Christ, death has no victory. That's our hope. That's what Christ has come to do. And suddenly we're able to live not defeated lives or fearful lives. We're able to live liberated lives. 
giving ourselves entirely to Jesus, giving ourselves entirely to his kingdom. But then there's a significant word when it, sa- when it says, for the sake of his followers, there's another important word in verse 45, and it's that, three li- it's that three-letter word. It says, Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom, to make a payment, but then it says, for. To give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I can't underestimate the significance and the weightiness of that little word as it relates to our understanding of the gospel. The word for literally means in the place of, instead of. What's being communicated in this moment is that when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross not as some ridiculous object lesson on love. He goes to the cross as a substitute taking people's place, dying on the cross as a ransom for in the place of many people. Now, there are some leaders in the church today who are compromising their core conviction as it relates to that word. They think that the idea of substitution is unbecoming of God or archaic, but I, if we lose the idea that Jesus died for us, We rob the gospel of its meaning. We rob the gospel of its power. Our worship of Jesus will dim if we don't understand the gravity of what he endured when he went to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not go to the cross because he failed the Father. He went to the cross in submission to the Father. But he went to the cross because we failed the Father. For our sake, we needed a Savior. We needed atonement. We needed forgiveness. And and Jesus says, this is what I've come to do, to give my life as a ransom for many. And I can't really illustrate that for you. It's hard to put a picture on that to explain what it was Jesus endured on the cross. I, I can't do it. Any analogy I give you will fall short. But I did get a picture of it last night when I was hanging out at my house. I was praying, Lord, I don't know how to illustrate this. This is too heavy of a reality. It's too, it's too deep in its theology. And I don't know how to paint a picture of this. And then there was a moment where my five-year-old daughter Delaney and my two-year-old son were hanging in the kitchen. And they were playing together. And Delaney had something that Asher wanted. And when Asher went to get it, he didn't ask for it. He just decided he was going to take it. And when Delaney refused to let him have it, Asher then swatted Delaney. Now, we don't encourage swatting in our house or hitting in our house, but he swatted Delaney, and so there was a consequence. We had to discipline my boy in that moment, and we disciplined him by putting him in timeout. We sent him to a corner in the stairwell, and we put him there by himself, and we said, you're in timeout, Asher. Sit here. Think about what just went down. Think about why it's not okay. Think about how that wasn't very loving to your sister. And then a while, I was sitting in the living room waiting for the timeout to go through. And the next thing I know, Asher's running around in the living room like, Asher, what are you doing? And I get up and I walk into the hallway and I see Delaney sitting in the timeout spot. (laughs) And I said, Delaney, what are you doing? She said, well, Daddy, I, I decided I wanted to take Asher's place. I said, what? Yeah, I decided to take his place. And so I came and and I sat in time out and I I told him to go play. I told him to go do his thing. I said, Delaney, what gave you that idea? She said, well, 
you guys talk a lot about what Jesus has done for us. And, and so I felt like I could just do that for Asher to show him that I love him even though he hit me. When it comes to substitution, this is the idea. You and I have sinned against God. We have offended him. We've tried to take that which doesn't belong to us, i.e. glory, i.e. self-governance, i.e. our own lives. And God, in a sense, when sin happened, God put the world, in a sense, in a cosmic timeout so that the world is now in a situation that isn't right, that isn't healthy. The world is subject to decay. Sin is a reality. Death is scary. The enemy wreaks havoc on people's lives all over the planet. And yet God, in his grace and in his mercy, sent his son Jesus to take our place in time out so that we might go free, so that we might be so that we might live. And he did that not at the expense of his justice. He did it in such a way that upheld his justice while extending grace. This is what it means for Jesus to go to the cross. If God just swept our sin under the rug and acted like it was no big deal, he would not be a righteous or just God. But if he abandoned the world because of sin, he would not be a gracious and merciful God. And so the question becomes, how can God be both just and merciful at the same time? Well, the answer to that riddle is the cross. It's in Jesus' death as a ransom for many where God upholds his justice and he extends grace. Jesus went to Jerusalem in submission to his father for the sake of his followers to do something for us that you and I could never do ourselves. This is the kind of leader Jesus is. He resolves to do what's difficult. And so he's explaining this to his disciples. But notice how his disciples respond in verse 35. And you begin to see, not only does Jesus resolve to do what's difficult, is that his uncompromised core within him, you find in Jesus this willingness to shepherd the hearts of his disciples. To shepherd his, the hearts of his disciples towards living in light of this reality. So in verse 35, James and John respond to what they just heard about how Jesus was going to, what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem. And this is what they, they do. Verse 35, they come up to Jesus, say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Strange question. You just feel like it's a leading question. They're about to drop something. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus responds, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to, them, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Just imagine Jesus just smacking his forehead after getting this question, immediately following his prediction of his passion. Now, to understand how Jesus is shepherding the hearts of his disciples in this moment, you have to know that when Jesus explains what's going to go down in Jerusalem, this is the third time he's done so. Two other times prior to this moment, Jesus has explained his passion. He's predicted his death in Jerusalem. But each time, the disciples respond in ways that reveal they're not getting it. They're not understanding what Jesus is saying. In the first passion prediction in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, immediately after Jesus talks about dying on the cross, Peter steps up and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, this can't be. You can't go to the cross and, and die that way. The second passion prediction found in Mark chapter 9, immediately after Jesus describes what's going to go down, it says that the disciples argued about who was going to be the greatest, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Again, revealing they did not get it. And then here in this third prediction, 
James and John are siphoning Jesus and asking if they might be the ones to sit in the place of honor at his right hand and at his left. And Jesus responds, well, guys, you just don't get it. And then they engage in a conversation where Jesus shepherds their hearts. But I want you to notice how he shepherds their hearts with great patience. He shows great patience to his stubborn disciples. He shows great patience with his disciples' inability to keep up with what Jesus is telling them. So he's patient. He doesn't crush them for this terrible request. He, he shepherds them through. And shepherding is something that we all need. We need a leader who's going to be patient with us. Because each and every one of us are works in progress. Each and every one of us are growing in our discipleship. And so there's one particular area where you see this happen. If you drop down to verse 41, when the other disciples heard that James and John made this request, it says they became indignant. They got angry. They got mad. Now, don't hear their anger as something noble. Their indignation wasn't noble. Their indignation, I believe, was born out of the fact that they got to Jesus first. This was a desire that Peter had too, perhaps. And so when Peter learned that James and John made this request, he became indignant. How can you beat me to the punch? I wanted to sit in one of those two positions of honor and status and esteem. But what's interesting about that word in verse 41 is that's the same word used to describe Jesus's emotions earlier in chapter 9, or in chapter 10. There's that moment. Look up at verse 14. There's that moment when the little kids are coming to Jesus and he's discipling and he's blessing the kids. And then the disciples try to hold the kids back. They rebuke the kids because the kids are viewed as disturbances. They're not blessings in their mind. And so it says in verse 14, when Jesus saw that happen, it says that he became indignant. He got angry. Now, when it comes to how Jesus shepherds our hearts, understand that his goal in shepherding us is to recalibrate our passions and to recalibrate our emotions. He patiently guides us to the point where you and I learn to get mad at what we should get mad at and learn not to get mad at what we shouldn't get mad at. The disciples are indignant because their pride has been punctured. The disciples are indignant because their self-serving perspective has been interrupted by someone else's self-serving perspective. In Jesus, he gets angry when the imago Dei, when the image of God is devalued in the little ones that were coming for blessing. That's what he gets mad at. But his reason for indignation is completely different than the disciples in this passage. And so in patience, we see this over and over and over again, not only in how Jesus deals with the disciples in the gospel, but how he deals with us patiently recalibrating our emotions, recalibrating our passions so that as we grow in our faith, we discover what it means to love and what it means to be angry, what it means to be humble, what it means to be patient, what it means to be people with passions, what does it mean to be truly human? And so Jesus here is shepherding the hearts of his disciples with patience. But notice what else he does here. He doesn't just shepherd their hearts with patience. He shepherds their hearts with perspective. You see, while the disciples are focusing on what they might get in the kingdom, Jesus is focusing on what he's come to give up. This is why he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, there are two aspects to those images. You have the cup and you have baptism. Cup 
is an image. It is a metaphor used in the Old Testament and sometimes in reference to joy and prosperity. But most of the times you read about cups in the Old Testament, it is a metaphor. It is a symbol for divine judgment and divine wrath. It's not a pleasant metaphor in most cases. But as you read about cups in the Old Testament, you'll find that in both cases, whether it's prosperity or whether it's pain and suffering and judgment, it it comes as a result of God. The cup is allotted by God. Now, when it comes to what Jesus is referring to when he pulls up the cup in this passage, I think he's got judgment and wrath in mind. And the reason for that is found in Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. There's this passage that connects cup with wrath and speaking to what Jesus would endure when he goes to the cross. It says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hands of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So cup there is connected to wrath. In Isaiah 51, 52, 53, the fingerprints of Isaiah are all over not only Mark 10, but the rest of the gospel narrative, constantly echoing back to that portion where the Messiah is described as coming in submission to the Father's will for the sake of his followers. And so this perspective is important. That word cup in Mark is a reference to what Jesus will endure on the cross that his disciples will not ultimately endure. It comes up again in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. There's that moment where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he's praying, it's described as Jesus sweating drops of blood. What do you think made Jesus sweat drops of blood? It wasn't because Jesus was afraid of the physical suffering he would endure on the cross. Other men and women have gone to their deaths with more courage than what Jesus displays in the Garden of Gethsemane if he's only worried about the physical suffering of the cross. The reason Jesus is sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane is because of what he prays. Father, let your will be done, but uh, if it is at all possible, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to drink this cup if at all possible. But then he submits, yet not what I will, but what you will be, be done. And so he prays about the cup. The cup is the struggle. God's wrath on the cross is the problem. That's what's unsettling Jesus. So it's very important that we don't underestimate what Jesus endured on the cross by overlooking the cup. The cup is Christ doing something that only he can ultimately do. But then he don't, not only does he talk about the cup, he uses the image of a baptism. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Try to say that three times fast. Baptism. The word baptism literally means to be immersed. It means to be plunged. It means to be submerged. Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm about to drown in suffering. I'm about to drown in the judgment of God. Not because I've done anything wrong. I'm about to drown in the judgment of God for your sake. This is what I've come to do. But the disciples still don't quite get it. So they they hold out this question. Well, we are able, in verse 39, they naively say we are able. And then Jesus just shepherds them with more patience and more perspective. Listen to what he says. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized you will benefit from my death on the cross. You're going to benefit from what I do. But 
if you do, if you benefit from what I'm going to do on the cross, there's a sense in which you are going to suffer as well. Not in the same way, but in real ways. And I think in this particular moment, Jesus is referring to the fact that James would be killed. Jesus knows that James is going to die for his faith. I think he understands in this moment that John too is going to suffer. And church history tells us that John is the one who died in exile on the island of Patmos, alone and isolated from the church, alone and isolated from his friends, alone and isolated from his family. Jesus is talking about the suffering they will endure because they benefit from his death on the cross. And so you have this moment where Jesus is shepherding with patience and perspective, but he's also shepherding them with promise. And this is very important. Remember, Jesus never ends on a downer. He always turns it up. Look back at what, Jesus, what they're requesting. They're asking if they could sit at his right hand and at their left. Now, there's one other moment where that same phrase is used in Mark's gospel. And that same phrase is used when Jesus is hanging on the cross and it says there's a guy who's on his right and there's a guy on his left. He's saying, you don't know what you're asking because if you identify with me, things are gonna be hard for you. But no matter what, no matter how hard life gets for you because you identify with me, understand there's a promise of new life. There's a promise of hope. There's a promise of, of a, a good future. Jesus made this promise earlier to the disciples in verse 28 through 30 of, of that same chapter. There's that moment in the passage we looked at last week where Peter began to say to Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. Look at what we've given up. Look at what we've sacrificed. And then Jesus makes this promise. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Here's the qualifier with persecutions, with hardship, with struggle, with opposition. Yes, that's going to be there. That's going to come. But you need to focus on the promise that though that is there, you're going to receive far more in the age to come or now and in the age to come eternal life. He's promising them that he always gives more than they will ever give up. So whatever suffering a disciple endures as a result of their relationship with Jesus, whatever sacrifices and surrender is made on, by them on behalf of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I promise I always give more than you give up. I promise I always give more than you give up. He's shepherding their hearts with this promise. And then he moves on to verse 42. After they have this exchange about the cup and baptism, verse 42, then Jesus calls his disciples and he begins to talk to them about the nature of the kingdom of God as it relates to leadership. And he draws a contrast between the kingdom of God and the ways of that leadership is exercised in the world. He says in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. You guys are going to be different. You guys are going to be different. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus is calibrating this perspective because in Jesus, we find a leader who serves those he leads. This is that third aspect of his leadership. Jesus serves those he leads. And in the process, he is flipping the script on the world that wants to lead from the top down. 
He's flipping the script on the world that wants to lead from in a hierarchical fashion, an authoritative fashion, a domineering fashion. He says, look, I serve those I'm leading. Therefore, he's the type of leader we want to follow because this Jesus has all the power in the universe. But his power is tapered with his compassion. Therefore, he's going to leverage his power and his compassion towards doing what's best for his people. And yet we live in a world where leadership isn't approached this way. We live in a world where power without compassion just results in poison. There was a news article written in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago that depicted this. It was a reacher by the name of Jonah uh, Lear, and he noted how most people are nicer as they're climbing the social ladder. He said, but once a person gets closer to the, to the top, they start acting like beasts. He writes, as one business professor concluded, it's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, a brain area that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. Lear noted a study in which psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. The group concluded that it was okay for them to speed, but that it was but that it was important for others to follow the posted limit. Their rationale was that powerful people are important and had a good reason for speeding. And then he concludes, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. The reason why Jesus is the only leader worth following is because Jesus is the only one who's not undone by the corner office. You realize Jesus was fine before he stepped into this world. You realize that when Jesus rose from the grave, he did not lose his desire to serve those who were following him. That the power didn't go to his head so that he began to wield it for everyone's ruin. But instead, the power of his resurrection, he's now wielding it for many people's restoration, for many people's ransom, for many people's salvation. And so Jesus is saying in this moment, I've come to wield power in a way the world knows nothing about. My power is tapered with my compassion. I've come to serve, not to be served. And when it comes to being a Christian, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, this is true of you. A Christian is someone who has been and is being served by the Savior. We are being served by Jesus. Don't take that and twist it. That doesn't mean that we can now tell Jesus what to do. That's what James and John were trying to do in this passage. They tried to tell Jesus what to do. Grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We don't have the freedom of telling Jesus what to do in that sense. But there are other senses where we hear Jesus say things like, Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. We hear Jesus say things like, you remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. What's the difference? Well, the difference is, no, you and I do not get to tell Jesus what to do, but we do get to receive from him everything we need. This is what it means to be saved, uh, served by Jesus. It means to receive from him what we need. So if you find your life 
going through this world and there comes a moment where you hear Jesus command you to do something or you're reading the scriptures and you hear Jesus telling you to do something. Every time Jesus commands you, every time Jesus tells you to do something, there's a way of seeing that as, a, as Jesus saying, look, I've, I'm commanding you to do this as a way of telling you how I want to serve you. Because every time I command you to do something, I promise to provide the grace and the resources needed to do it. So when you were commanded by Christ to give something up, when you were commanded by Christ to cut ties with something or go a different direction, when you were commanded by Christ, it is Jesus' way of saying, this is how I want to serve you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to enable you to do what I'm telling you to do. So to say that Jesus serves those he leads, that doesn't mean we get to tell him whatever we do, whatever we want to do, but it does mean we get to receive from him whatever we need to do the things he tells us to do. This is how he serves us. See, the Christian life growing in our faith is a lot like Benjamin Button. Benjamin Button grew backwards. The Christian life, in a sense, when you become a disciple, you begin to grow backwards. The Christian life is Jesus saying, you must become like a child in order to be blessed and to enter and to receive my kingdom. The kingdom of God is like you becoming the type of person who lets yourself be served by Jesus. You let him serve you. You let him save you. You let him ransom you. You let him provide for you. This is what it means to become a Christian. Growing in your faith does not mean you grow beyond your need for Jesus. Growing in your faith means you are more aware each and every day of how much you need him. And so you're coming to Jesus to provide you with everything you need. This is the core of Jesus' leadership. You see Jesus resolving to do what's difficult. You see him shepherding the hearts of his disciples and you see him serving those he's leading. And it is this perspective that must give shape to our leadership. Because if we're gonna take our cues from Jesus, if our core is gonna be developed in our relationship with Christ, it means a few things I'm just gonna give to you to take away this evening. It means one, that we're gonna trust Jesus when we do what's difficult. We're going to trust Jesus when doing what's difficult. We're going to trust that God is good in Jesus anytime we're doing what's difficult. And this stands in contrast with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler affirmed and agreed with Jesus that God is good, but he did not trust him to be, God, be, to be good through Jesus. So that when Jesus said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, he refused. He wouldn't trust the goodness of God in Jesus to do that difficult thing. But you and I aren't going to go his way. We're going to trust Jesus when doing what's difficult. But not only are we going to trust Jesus when doing what's difficult, we're going to imitate Jesus by shepherding hearts. We're going to shepherd hearts. This means that in our discipleship, we're not going to settle for begrudging obedience. We don't want people just begrudgingly obeying Jesus. So we're not going to settle for that. We want hearts to melt in light of the gospel. But as we say, we're not going to settle for begrudging obedience. We're also going to say that delight follows discipline. And so we know that delight is rarely out in front in the Christian life so that we obey as a result of delight. A lot of times delight follows discipline. So we encourage people to be disciplined in their surrender, to be disciplined in their submission, to be disciplined in their obedience. And we give them the promise, delight follows discipline. So we want to shepherd hearts so that our hearts are warm towards Christ as we're following him through this world. And then lastly, we want to exalt Jesus by serving those we lead. 
We want to exalt Jesus by serving those we lead, whether it's in the home, whether it's at work, whether it's in our missional communities or here in this space. Exalt Jesus by serving those that we're leading because ultimately our Christian service exists only to draw attention to the fact that Christ was crucified and that Christ was risen to give himself as a ransom for many. And so all of our service is designed to echo that reality. Let's pray in this direction. Heavenly Father, I pray that our core would not be compromised. I pray that our core convictions would be cultivated in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. I pray that we would be the type of disciples who do difficult things. I pray that we would be the types of disciples who shepherd the hearts of others. I pray that we would be the types of disciples who serve those that we lead, who would give ourselves entirely to serving those around us. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be exalted, that you would be made much of each and every step of the way. Father, we ask this and we pray this in his name. Amen.